There is this strange idea percolating that autonomous vehicles will solve all of our problems in cities. I call it strange because it is rooted in the same failed thinking that blew up our cities over the course of my lifetime. And that thinking is the idea that we can plan our cities around cars and still have a high quality of life for people. A new study from a Washington-based transportation analytics company has found that the average Seattle driver spends 58 hours a year looking for parking. 58 hours! More broadly, Americans waste 73 billion per year looking for a parking spot, circling the block, getting stuck on one-way streets, waiting for a spot to open up. You know the drill. Let's be honest, if you live in a North American city, you know the drill. For some, this leads to a quick conclusion. We need more parking. If we add more parking, there will be a spot for every car. Problem solved. Parking Nirvana but not so fast. In most growing, thriving urban places in North America, the trend line is the other way. Take the parking away. Build a fundamentally different kind of a city. A city not for cars, but a city for people. I'll outline a great example. I was once asked to work on a master plan for a downtown in a mid-sized Canadian city. The design brief was clear. We have a parking shortage, and as a result, the cost of parking is too high. This was the logic. Increase parking, reduce prices, and more people will come downtown. Now, there was only one problem. In our analysis of land uses in the downtown, we quickly discovered that 42% of the land area of the downtown was used for surface parking. Was downtown stuck because there wasn't enough parking? Or there wasn't enough city? The challenge pointed to a fundamental question that must drive our future plans for cities and our debates around the integration of autonomous vehicles. And it's this, are we planning our cities for cars or do we recognize cars for what they are? A mobility tool and a mobility tool with pretty severe limitations. Because if the goal of our cities is to create great places with the densities that can ensure a mix of uses, this really only points us in one direction, and that is towards transit. My name is Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. In this episode, I speak with one of the great transit planners of our time, who is in the process of shaping cities through the use of transit as a tool. And his name is Jarrett Walker. I'm here in studio with Jarrett Walker from Portland, Oregon. Jarrett, it's great to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks. Now, you've called your book Human Transit, really emphasizing the human part, the people part over the engineering part. And I think that's unusual for transit planners. So I'm going to ask a little bit of a dumb question. And in part because I think the challenge is sometimes our transit systems don't really deliver uh, for people. You know, what you would call everywhere to everywhere service. Um, Why did you make human transit your starting point? What I was after there is that the conversation about transit was very much an engineering conversation and it tended to describe outcomes at a high level, at a large scale collective level, like for example, ridership or um, mode share or whatever. And the problem with that way of talking, although that's the appropriate way of talking about outcomes for the whole city, the problem is that it wasn't really connecting with why an ordinary voter would support transit why or why a human being would choose transit over their other options. So, um, so while I knew that I needed to present some basic math, I wanted to recenter that as this is math about how transit goes about being useful to you or not. And so that's why I chose the title. Well, it's really interesting because you're talking about why transit might be useful to an individual. But I think historically, particularly in North America, transit was sort of seen as a last choice. It wasn't actually about being useful as a first choice. Transit was really, well, if you can't afford a car, I guess you're going to be stuck with having to take transit. Transit was almost viewed as a social service as opposed to being a critical key movement option. You know, I think one of the interesting things about that is that we have, um, certainly in the U.S. and to a lesser degree here, we have so much rural-urban polarization now. And um, I find that very sad because 
the rural experience is just different from the urban experience, and this is one major way in which it's different. If you live in inner city Toronto, you completely understand from your daily life that transit just has to work, that it's just existential for where you live. Whether or not you even use it, even somebody who drives a limousine down King Street understands that if everyone on that tram got into cars, the limousine wouldn't get where it's going. Right, right. So there's an understanding, there's a collective understanding about the urgency for transit because it's the urgency of efficient use of space. In rural, in rural areas or in outer suburbs, um, it is completely understandable that people don't see it that way. It's completely understandable. And so, uh, and this really, really gets to the fact that we have to have, be allowed to have a separate urban conversation and a different kind of rural conversation. And one of the dangers I think we've had is trying to present transit in any sort of one-size-fits-all way because that just irritates people. Absolutely. Because it's, it's not relevant to the rural experience and it's also not relevant to the inner city experience. So here we are. We have this incredible rebirth in transit across our, our cities in North America. Uh, why, why is that happening now? Is it that we're kind of figuring, figuring out this idea that you need to think about transit in different ways? Is that why it's happening right now? Like, why is it happening now? I think enough people are figuring out that the sensation of I have my car and because I have my car, I am entitled to drive it anywhere. Um, however strongly felt that sensation may be, it is simply not working. And it's not working for fairly obvious geometric reasons that smarter people are figuring out. And that I think everyone is starting to figure out if they have to deal with the problems of a big city or a big urban area. Um, and so we're really seeing something striking. You know, you look at this uh, recent election in the United States, the 2016 fall election. And, um, you know, the headlines are, you know, the surprising outcome with the presidency. But we had an almost a clean sweep of all of the referenda across the country that were about raising money for transit. You know, that's how we do it in the United States. We tend to have public referenda about specific tax raising for certain purposes. Um, and there, is only, there was only, of the big referenda that were on the ballot, there was only one that didn't get a majority. That was in Detroit, and it got over 49%. Um, there were two in California that didn't pass because they require two-thirds in California, but all the rest got majorities. Uh, Los Angeles got 70%, you know. Amazing. Extraordinary. When you think that of Los Angeles, it's not just a dense inner city. It's an enormous amount of suburbia. But there's an understanding across all those kinds of different development types that the way we have been doing it isn't working, and it's not working in ways that are really impinging on people's lives. So it's interesting. In some ways, the reason why now is in part because of planning failures that are resulting in a tangible quality of life constraint or compromise, mm -hmm. meaning the long commute, the difficulty of having to spend so much money on transportation right. when you don't have access to transit. Those seem to be drivers that are repositioning the way municipalities are actually thinking about transit as being a central part of their urban infrastructure. Right. Is that exactly. fair? Exactly. No, that's very fair. And I think that what's interesting is, though, is the degree to which even suburban areas are understanding that something has to be done with this. And we're no longer having urban-suburban debates about how much we should accommodate cars so much as we're having urban-suburban debates about who gets transit next. Right. Right. Um, the debate, you know, everyone wants transit and, you know, the urban suburban debates are in, you know, in the, in the big urban areas now are much more about sort of who gets it next and how much and what kind rather than whether transit's important. Well, and you know, it's something that we take for granted. We have our own transit controversies here in the city of Toronto. Uh, and I had no idea. <laughs> it, it, it feels like the whole world knows, but <laughs> the what's we sometimes lose sight of in those debates and how difficult those debates are is that we do have a shared consensus around the importance of building transit. It's what to build and the technologies right. to use. That's what we're struggling with. That's where there is not a lot of agreement. But the notion that we should be building transit instead of highways is something that there is a shared consensus that has emerged quite broadly, in part because we had this experience really over the past 30 years, building the 400 series highways, ringing the whole region with, you know, 20 lanes of highways that just led to more congestion has 
in fact, made it so explicit that transit is the next step, that transit is the way that we're going to unlock opportunity and quality of life really for everyone. And I think there's also a safety imperative that's that people are starting starting to get and figure out a little bit. And I'm wondering, because I've heard you speak about this in the past uh, and even tell some very personal stories around safety and the importance of transit from a safety perspective. Um, I don't want to go too deep down this road, but I do want to touch on it because we do have a crisis across North America in our major cities. People are getting killed as pedestrians. Transit riders are pedestrians. Uh, they're getting hit by cars, by drivers. How, how? What role does transit play in kind of unlocking the safe city? Um, it's interesting that part of what's happening is not just that more people are getting killed, but that people are starting to complain about getting killed. You know, right. um, I mean, the 1960s car-oriented city was also deadly for pedestrians. The only difference was that fewer people were pedestrians. And um, they tended to be people who didn't complain too much and, and had a more fatalistic view of things. But um, vision zero, you know, the Vision Zero Revolution, which is what you're referring to. Yes, vision absolutely. Zero is the idea of cities adopting policies that say that zero deaths in the transportation system is the goal. Mm -hmm. um, and that all deaths are preventable. That's that a really big idea is that we shouldn't exactly. say, well, we're an urban place. Sorry, some people are going to die on our streets. Vision Zero says, actually, that's not acceptable. You know, we don't say, oh, well, some people are going to die in fires, so we're mm -hmm. not going to worry about how we wire our homes. Right. We actually say, you know what? Those deaths are preventable. Too, and we're going to have all kinds of safety measures and a lot of design thinking and public education to prevent fire deaths. And Vision Zero is really taking that same kind of energy and momentum around, quite frankly, respect for human life right. and bringing it into the public realm. An interesting thing, I was I spent the last two days working in a suburban city well to the west of Toronto called Burlington. Uh, relatively affluent, very low density place, very much in the early stages of thinking about any kind of urbanism. They have a network of mostly five-lane arterials in uh, in rights-of-way that are wide enough to be nine lanes. And one of the interesting things is that although the council has various different views about transit, they are all adamant that they will never widen their streets anymore. So I think there is, you know, even before you articulate Vision Zero, there's a growing sense of revulsion about very wide arterials. Right, right. And about the impossibility of trying to create any sort of civilized urban environment around a nine-lane arterial or even a seven-lane arterial. And I think that ties to the fact that we all know now, even people who haven't looked at the data understand if they stop and interrogate their own driving behavior, that a wider street with wider lanes makes you drive faster and that um, that makes the environment less uh, more dangerous for pedestrians. So it's interesting, even a lot of demands for smallness and intimacy that we may experience as nimbyism that we may ex that may show up as hostility to density is actually also tied to this fear of speed and to this fear of hugeness which um which is in many ways actually can be reflective of, of an, an aspect of the pedestrian experience it's not just you know we can't have density because i won't find parking so it's an interesting time for that it was interesting to listen to this conversation in burlington because uh, and this absolute consensus, these streets must never be wider than five lanes. They're fighting with the region over a regional plan that tells them to widen their streets and they're not willing to do it. Um, and I think that's very interesting. Um, the other thing that's very interesting in this region, in the Toronto region, is the phenomenon of municipal ownership of transit. So many regions um, have a gigantic regional transit agency that is extremely centralized. And so if you're a small uh, city on the edge of the region, there is somebody in a tower in the big city, you know, 40 Ks away. Pulling draw, the strings, drawing pushing your the buttons. Bus system, drawing <laughs> yeah. your bus system. And they occasionally send ambassadors out to tell you how your bus system is going right, to be. Right. And you can imagine how that makes a municipality feel like transit isn't important because we don't control it. We control the roads, so let's do roads. We control the bike lanes, so let's do bike lanes. Transit, it's those, it's those unpleasant people from the tower. And you know, I've been the person in the tower. You know, when I worked for <laughs> when I worked for TransLink in Vancouver, you know, that is a giant regional agency. I was the person in the tower going out to those little cities and uh, trying to tell them that I know what's best for them. And you know, how'd that work out for you? Exactly. You know, <laughs> I think we are figuring out now the principle of subsidiarity, which is that 
let us push decision-making down to the lowest level at which you can make the decision, the lowest level at which you can grapple with the entire problem. But let me pause you there for a minute because this is this is fascinating to me because you're actually um, tapping into some conversations that are happening here that I didn't realize are happening in other cities as well. But there often is this narrative that our problem is that transit should be managed at the regional level. And my question is, well, why transit? Why not roads? Why aren't roads managed at the regional level? What is this allure or this romanticization that somehow if transit is managed at the regional level that it somehow gets better? I I don't actually get the drivers behind that. And one of the reasons I don't is because, you know, the city of Toronto with our TTC system, which is 1.8 million rides on a daily basis, uh, what's interesting is that if it was uploaded, it would be like a very, very small agency taking over a very, very large agency, which is completely incomprehensible. It's like saying, you know, let's get the smallest state to start managing the largest state. It makes no sense. Well, and what would happen in in Toronto's case if you gave up the municipal control of transit is that you, then the center of gravity would move even further outward in terms of having a suburban-dominated region telling you what your transit system should be. And because the, the dense central city is so unusual, remember, transit demand is not only related to density, it's actually nonlinear to density. It goes up even steeper than density. It curves upward. And so when you get into the extremely high-density city, transit is so existential. For the you know it's it's an existential necessity, and inadequate transit is an existential threat. So what we're increasingly seeing is that the gigantic regional transit agency, which has overwhelmingly a suburban majority in its population, starves the inner city of transit it desperately needs, and um, because that's where the regional consensus sits. Right. Right. So I I think it's I think um, is that a phenomenon everywhere? Like is that something that happens in cities? Mm-hmm. You know, you're saying things that I'm going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it I'm, happens in different pl- ways in different countries. But in Canada, you know, the metro Vancouver area has an example of a unified regional transit agency. And it has its benefits, right? Nobody gets dumped out of the city limits anywhere in the Vancouver area, right? right. You've got a continuous transit lines flow across the city limits effortlessly. But what's the trade-off? The trade-off is that cities have no ownership. Even the city of Vancouver has no ownership. Right. Every, you know, and and... I experienced TransLink when I was there um, in 2006 and again in 2011 as an extremely competent agency staffed with extremely dedicated professionals who really want what's best for the whole region and for all the cities in it. The problem is that when they went to any particular city, they were the big people from the tower. Right, right. right. And their role inevitably seemed colonialist and you know fundamentally not integrated with the city's thinking about itself. But let's flip this on its head. Um, the re- reality is we increasingly live in regions. People are crisscrossing municipal boundaries all the time. How do you, in fact, create a transit system that means you can, with fluidity, get from one municipality to another municipality without having that person in the tower? And I ask that because I think it might be wrong thinking, but I see how people end up going there in terms of thinking that that's the right kind of governance. They're really looking for an integrated service. That's right. really the, the objective. So here's the thing about integration. You can integrate in the sense of making a single transit system crossing many city boundaries so that you, know, you never have to, you know, the city boundaries never affect the design of the system. That's great. That's one kind of integration. But when you do that, you've disintegrated in a different dimension. And that is the integration of transit planning with land use planning and street planning. Absolutely. So the case for municipal control is that, um, the, I mean, I'll tell you what happened in Burlington. I landed, we went out on a Sunday and the head of transportation and the head of land use and the land use planner took me out around the town and they were practically arm in arm working together. And, you know, the transit staff was there and they're all on the same page and they know they all work for the same council, right? So council is telling them to cooperate. Now, what happens in Metro Vancouver, if you're a particular city inside Metro Vancouver, Surrey or whatever, you've got a council telling you to do this with the roads, do this with the bike lanes, do this, do this. Transit, that's something that people in the tower come lecture us about, right? People come out from the big city to lecture us about transit. And, um, and so, of course, 
the, the city government doesn't think as much about building transit into what it's doing because they don't control it. Right. And it gives but isn't it gives, that something... it gives city leaders a kind of deniability that they really that it really isn't good for them. Right, right. right. But isn't that something that is uh, overcome, uh, not necessarily through governance changes and a you know a complete restructuring, but in fact by putting mechanisms in place that demand and require um, a whole series of different collaborations. You know, I spent my day yesterday in six hours of transit meetings, and in every one of those meetings, the head of the TTC, an operator, Andy Byford, was there, but also uh, Metrolinx was in every one of those meetings because there's a whole series of decisions that need to be made across our various interests and platforms in order to deliver on our transit network planning. So the integration is something that actually happens in terms of how we show up for work every day and who we invite, who are the decision makers that are invited to share a table and to participate. And I think what's happened historically in in a more siloed context is that you simply, you don't have the land use planner sitting at the table talking about station design with the engineers who are also looking at station design. And of course, as you can appreciate, uh, and many of these meetings were about station design around Smart Track and RER. Uh, the way it was designed by the engineers is very different from the way the planners design it. They wanted lots of passenger pickup and drop off spaces and big parking lots, and we said, no, 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 those are building parcels. Right. You know, we want to create a place here. We want to create a destination, uh, and we also, you know, from a planning perspective, we're emphasizing the connectedness of the network. No, 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 this isn't about bringing more cars into the city. Uh, that's exactly the opposite of what we want to do through our transit. So don't give us drop off and pick up and parking lots because that just brings more cars. But let's make sure that we're increasing the bus service so that we have better connected between very connections between various elements of the network. Well, that is happening as challenging as it might be. That is happening because we have mechanisms that have now been put into place over the past several years to ensure we've got a variety of different interests sitting around the same table together. But it doesn't need, we need to run each other's agencies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And um, still, I think there is a value at the level of political integration. Um, the elected officials problem everywhere is that you get elected to office and suddenly everyone's screaming at you and you can't find the dashboard. Right. You can't find... You know, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I mean, you know, one, one person I know who's on a city council explained to me, you know, I, I spent a year of my life running to be on city council. And then once I was on council, I spent months lobbying to be assigned to the board of the regional transit agency. And now I sit in these meetings and they bring me resolutions about purchasing bus washing equipment. But <laughs> nobody ever asks me what my values are. Nobody ever asks me what my priorities are. Nobody ever, you know, it's all staff reports and recommendations and you should really do this. And, um, and they, it's like they can't find the dashboard. It's like they're in a car and the car is moving and they don't know what buttons they can push or right. what they can do. So I really sympathize with that elected experience. And um, so, and which is why one of the things I, I do in my work is try to give the electeds a dashboard and figure out a way to present a clear decision to them and step back and let them do it. Because um, because I want I'm always trying to figure out how to give them ownership rather than deniability. Which well, is but there's another piece to this, Jarrett, which I think is about making sure that we're asking asking the right questions. And I think part of that, you know, that's a fascinating example. Someone cares really passionately about maybe it's social equity, and suddenly they're sitting in meetings and they're looking at. Uh, window washer fluid for buses, right? And they're going, what? <laughs> That's not why I showed up in this room. That's right, not why right. I ran for office. And I do think that happens a lot, that really we get way down in the weeds and we lose the strategic direction and the strategic questions. How do we actually ensure, and I see this I see this happen with my team as well. Well, we'll be way down in the weeds on some point and I'll go, but wait a minute, uh, you know, we're, we're designing the footprint of the building, but is the building in the right location? 
You know, you have to actually pull the lens out, constantly pull the lens out to make sure that we are aligning the strategic decisions with the values around the kind of city that that we're seeking to create. And including everyone in the that needs to be included in the conversation about those values. It can't be just, you know, us in, or us urban intellectuals and our values. You know, we have to be out there. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, compromising with the whole. You know, another interesting thing that happens in this elected staff dynamic is that, you know, one people, the electeds can't find the dashboard. And one response to this is to just be meek and fr frustrated, but meek. The other response to this, which is sort of a, um, I mean, your former mayor, Rob Ford, was sort of this kind of character. You can't find the dashboard. You get frustrated. And so you just start destroying things. I was just, right when you said you that you can't find it, you know, what popped things. in my head right. was you blow stuff up. <laughs> you blow stuff up. Exactly. Right. You just you blow stuff up. There's no nuance. You just blow stuff up. Right. And I'm and I'm always trying to, to encourage staff to understand that if you don't want to elect people who are just going to blow stuff up, you need to give people the power to make their you need to to make this transparent enough for electeds that they they do feel like they have buttons they can turn and they see the effect of turning those buttons. Um, I think the other thing that's that's very important then too is to bring elected not just bring electeds together on longer term plans but bring enough of the community stakeholders together on longer-term plans so that those plans stay, maintain their authority even as the elected boards turn over. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love it that that's where you've gone with this because, uh, as you know, we talked and I have some questions I'm holding here in my hand and I'm not even looking at them. And I actually hadn't had the piece around great transit planning about the role of the public. I, I hadn't had that piece in there, which is ironic because, of course, one of the first things that I did as chief planner was initiate feeling congested. And feeling congested was all about values. It was about, okay, hold on a minute. What kind of city do we want to create and how can transit as a tool deliver on those objectives? And we identified a whole variety, social equity, uh, supporting employment and growth, environmental sustainability, increasing choice within the system so that more people could use transit as their first choice as opposed to something that was a last resort. And what was interesting was that when we went out to the public and we had this big consultation process, went out to the public and we heard back from the public that all of those objectives mattered. We had actually wanted the public, we gave them eight and we wanted them to come back to us and say, you know, well, social equity and supporting employment matters most. And that's actually not what we heard, that the public had a very broad view, and this was encouraging to me, had a very broad view as to how transit could deliver on our larger uh, city building goals. And what's so fascinating to me is that here we are five years later, and the resonance of those values hasn't disappeared and is in multiple reports, probably 10 or 15 reports on an annual basis um, as the framework for evaluating our transit network and our, our transit decision making. And the legitimacy that we have around that framework is in fact the input that we had from the public. And through a whole variety of things, including everything from using website analyses to uh, like a little game that we had on the website to public meetings, traditional meetings, workshops, uh, large-scale events. And what's so fascinating to me is the um, resilience of those values. Mm -hmm. It's not like we've even been through a shifting council and those values were so resilient that when the new council came in and we continued using them and we explained them to the new councillors, they went, yep, yep, that makes sense to me. Right. And that's been an important tool for us in getting away from focusing on projects and being able to deliver on a network and make network uh, recommend recommendations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions I have for you is really about you've raised this issue of the, the public participation and the political interface. Um, what is it that actually makes great transit? So forget about the operational piece right now, but transit planning work. Like how do you deliver on transit planning in the 21st century? Very clearly, we know that we need constituencies at the ground level to be fully in, engaged and participating. But in most jurisdictions, I think it's still very politicized that there's, it, it's hard to actually go back to that value-driven approach. So what is it that makes it work? So what I'm always trying to do is um, uh, when people say that it's political and therefore it's going to be irrational, I always want to stop and question that. 
because again, it becomes political because you have people on your board who are, you know, who are trying to blow up the machine because they don't understand it or because they feel like they're not, they don't have levers that they can. It's no dashboard going back right, to your it's analogy. No dashboard, you know, I, that's, that's, that's very frustrating and scary. And I understand that people act out in that situation in various ways. So I'm really focused on giving them the dashboard. And so an example of, you know, the kind of thing we need to do in transit planning is not just go out and say, which of these things is important to you, but where there is a genuine trade-off where you really are going right. to have to choose between more of this or more of that, like in a budgetary decision, you really, I really want to engage the public and then engage the council in thinking about that choice. So one example we have, and it's, it's a very common issue in suburban areas, but even in a place like Toronto, you have places affected like this. We call it the ridership coverage trade-off. So lots of people are out there writing papers about transit ridership and about, you know, is transit making sense because this is what its ridership is. And they're all missing the fact that not all transit is trying to have ridership. Some right. transit exists. Uh, some, you know, most transit agencies run buses in low-density, squiggly neighborhoods where the agency knows perfectly well that the ridership is always going to be low. You can explain geometrically why that would be the case based on the density and so on. Um, so... There's this interesting question, okay, what would a maximum ridership network look like? Well, it means no service in those areas and very concentrated high-frequency service in the places where you have the favorable land use pattern. And so, of course, the suburban uh, cities or constituencies or wards freak out about this and obviously aren't going to support this. And so now we're ready. At that point, you're ready. Now, now we can all come together on the reality that, oh, we don't just want ridership, do we? We actually have a portion of our network that is built for ridership. And then we have this, area, this piece of the network, these categories of services over here where ridership is not the expectation and not why we're running them. So rather than – so what would typically happen in a transit agency in the past is that the planners who think they've been told – who think their fundamental job is ridership would say, well, we do what we can but we come up against politics. And I want to say no. Your, politics is human beings expressing their desires for their city, <laughs> Right. Ultimately, and yeah, there are personalities and negotiating and them and there negotiating are, you know, them. There are personalities and difficulties and so on. But what is rather than thinking about this as politics, think about this as no. Actually, you have two different competing objectives that that the community is expressing, and so at that point, I see my job as to be going back to the to the council or board and saying. Okay, look, see, based on the conversations you've already had and the decisions you've already made, you're doing two competing things with your transit system. So let's treat this like a budgetary decision. Let, why don't you decide what percentage of your budget you want to have devoted to the ridership goal, what percentage you want to have devoted to the coverage goal, and that's then you have a knob on your dashboard, you can turn it and you'll see the results and you can own the results. It's interesting that you put it that way because in many ways that uh, that really was what we were trying to do in creating that feeling congested tool. Um, and we did in fact say, well, look, um, if social equity is the goal, these would be your priority projects. Right. But if in fact economic development is your goal, then these would be... So really trying to make it transparent that there's a whole variety of different objectives embedded in advancing transit projects and transit infrastructure components of the network and that really it's a choice. Mm -hmm. So let's make that choice transparent. But you know, as someone who has been uh, really dogged by a media that is obsessed with ridership numbers and I'm kind of the lone voice in the wilderness saying, it's it's about more. It's about the city. It's about attracting growth. It's about a network. Um, one of the things that I've come to realize is that the reason why the media and sometimes the public get so obsessed with this is because transit costs a lot of money. And so there's this overwhelming sentiment that if transit costs a lot of money, we want to ensure that we're building it in the locations where we are going to have right. the most riders, right? Can you comment on that? Because that's really, I think, the tension that ends up manifesting itself at a very practical level. Right. So there are a couple of things about that. Obviously, transit costs visible money and cars cost hidden money. Um, right. So that's part of why it looks like transit's so expensive because we haven't really costed out the alternative of not having it. 
uh, and what that looks like. But the other point I think I want to make here is going back to the notion that ridership is the outcome or ridership is the expectation. And yes, yeah, staffs get beaten up for not delivering ridership as though their elected lords had told them to do that, which usually they haven't. <laughs> right. What their elected lords have told them is, I want this service in my ward, you know, which is completely different from wanting a high ridership system overall. Let me pick on, up on one other thing you said, though. One of the pro- There are a couple of problems with ridership as an outcome. Uh, um, one of it is is the question of its predictability when we're talking about major infrastructure. We can come back to that. But I'm interested in this notion that there is another outcome to transit, there's another outcome to transportation in general, which we're not capturing when we look at actual usage. And that is what I would call freedom and opportunity. Right, right. So the fact and I, and I increasingly do measurements of my transit proposals using this tool because I want to be able to say, for someone living at this location, maybe the centroid of your electorate or whatever, somebody at this location, this transit plan, which generates certain inconveniences that people will be mad about, actually increases the number of jobs you could get to from there in, say, 30 minutes by this amount. I want to go very directly to the idea of access to opportunity. And it's not just access to the opportunity in the sense that we want like low-income people to be able to get to jobs. It's also that this is basically what freedom is. Because if you can't go there, you can't do it. You know, um, where you can go is what you can do. And so, you know, I will use examples like um, if it's not in this area that she can get to in 30 minutes, you know, or 60 minutes, it's not a job she can hold. It's a school she can't go to. Right, It's right. clubs she can't belong to. Right, right. It's possible romantic partners that she'll never meet if they're not in that <laughs> club. So, you know, it's all those things. That must be a hard one to measure. make up opportunity. <laughs> but see, this is the whole point. I argue, and this really goes, uh, and this is an important way to talk about this in the U.S., where there's a, a much clearer concern for this fundamental sensation of liberty. But I think everyone in all the uh, in all democracies at least values this. The fact that you had a choice is valuable regardless of what choice you made. Right. The fact that you right. could have gone to three grocery stores and any of three grocery stores instead of having to go the, to the only one you can get to is valuable regardless of which grocery store you went to and thus what trip was made. And all we do in our transportation planning is count what people did. Um, it's – and it – Oh, it's odd to the way we do trip planning. You know, we tend to study what everybody's doing in terms of movements as though what they're doing is what they want to do and as though what they're doing is the only outcome. When I, when another important outcome is simply that they felt free to do one of several Absolutely. things. They didn't feel enslaved by their options. They didn't feel like their options were limited and could only do one thing. And that's something that our transportation, the way we think about transportation, isn't picking that up, freedom itself as an outcome. Well, and, you know, in part, I think because we haven't really had a conceptual framework around it to measure it and understand it. We did put in those eight criteria choice and the way we defined choice and increasing choice was really about access to the network, your idea of being able to go everywhere to everywhere as opposed to assuming that everyone's going downtown uh, or that everyone's going to one key destination. This notion that if you build out the network, you allow people to go everywhere that they want to go on on transit. And I think that's, obviously um, an admirable and critical objective, but we tend to underplay it as being the value that we have in our overall transit system, in part because we see cars as doing that. Cars deliver you everywhere to everywhere, but transit is really about going downtown. It's getting to the ball game or it's getting to, it's getting to your job. And I think that is in many ways one of the catch-22s that we do face in trying to think about and talk about this in a way that is not going to get us locked down into really what I think is some false data. You know, the ridership numbers, it ends up being a lot of false data that gets way, way too much weight. And in reality, what does it really tell us? Um, and also people tend to forget, it's actually not really data when you're forecasting. We're, <laughs> like we're making, we're making all these incredible assumptions. You know, there's 25 different assumptions that lead to that ridership number. And those assumptions are related to population growth, employment growth, other network components, the amount of you know immigrants versus locals, like it's crazy, crazy. All the all the assumptions. The assumptions are even crazier than that because if you're going to go out twenty years like you do for a big piece of infrastructure like a subway or something, 
Um, there are two interesting things about that. One, of course, is that nobody will ever check. 20 years from now, <laughs> yeah, nobody, yeah, nobody yeah. will care what yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. will have moved on. So um, I, I often have to, you know, when I explain this to journalists, they first think it's kind of a con. Like, what do you mean you can never check? Yeah, you can never really check. Yeah. Um, so which, there's just which too many variables. Of, which already <laughs> kind of goes to the fact that we're probably measuring the wrong thing. Um, that's why I prefer to talk about how liberty or, or freedom changes rather than just how ridership changes. Uh, I want people. I want to know what people could do and not just what they did. But also, um, when you when you make a long term projection like that, you always have to assume that nothing really changes except the changes you're studying. So there's always this bias toward the notion of a con, uh, there's has some sort of constant background. And, you know, one of the things that's built into all of those models is the notion that how do we decide how people will make mode choices 20 years from now? We look at what they're doing now. Yeah, exactly. Which and, is just... and so when I'm talking to a group of young people, I'll always say, please understand that the fundamental assumption of all of our transportation planning is that when you're the same age as your parents are now, you'll behave exactly the way they do. We Bizarre. Are, we, we Like are, how untrue is that, <laughs> we right? Are, like... We're assuming that everyone is a carbon copy of their parents. And um, you can't do long-range transport projections. Yeah, and without... are you living like your parents did? <laughs> like, you know, honestly, are you? No, no not you're nodding all. your head no. Not you know, all. no, no, no. I'm well, not what... even re remotely living What's the way more, my parents did. How many millennials want to hear that? Well, you know? Yeah, exactly. Ah, well, actually, they're actively resisting that and saying, you know what? Forget the driver's license. Forget course, the big, exactly. the big lawn. I'm, I'm actually not making those, those same choices. So the way ma people make choices twenty years from now will be different when those people, young people, are in their forties and fifties. But you know, um, who are we now to say exactly what that will mean in terms of mode choices then? Well, and this is the challenge with all of this modeling that's undertaken is that it it creates a false kind of certainty that we actually have some clarity about what those choices will be in the future when in reality, we don't. I just want to go back for a minute because um, this notion of being connected everywhere to everywhere, and I loved it that you talked about education and jobs, but you also talked about who you love. And I want to pick up on that for a minute uh, at the risk of getting into some of what's just shaken our world, quite frankly, um, in terms of American politics and the Donald Trump becoming president-elect. And uh, because I think who you love is a really big, big part of this. It's very um, interesting to me that Doug Saunders wrote a book called Arrival City. And in this book, he talked about how immigrants get integrated into new societies in such a way that they actually become really a part of the middle class. They become contributing members of those societies. And in light of uh, Donald Trump winning the electoral college vote, uh, in light of that, it's very interesting to me that he ended his story, this comprehensive review of communities around the world with a story about a neighborhood in Toronto. And what's so interesting about this neighborhood, it's a neighborhood that very low income housing, tower in the park typology, not so desirable. Uh, there's lots of struggles in this neighborhood. It's a large neighborhood. It's a place where new immigrants come to live. But the fascinating part about the story is that within one generation, those kids coming into that neighborhood are in university and are in professional jobs. They're actually transitioning into the middle class. And part of the story that he tells in his book is about access. It's about freedom. It's about where you can get, who you can know. And he talks about transit. And we, um, you know, buses get a really bad rap in this city because we have a subway system, but people really don't get it that Buses are actually the lifeblood of our transit system. 60% of trips start on a bus. And for those communities, the great bus service that we have in the city is about access to jobs, education. And the reason I'm saying the who you love piece is because it's also about integration. It's about us knowing other people. It's about having that opportunity like I have, uh, because I take transit to work when I'm not when I'm not on my bike, that opportunity to be standing beside a woman whose life experience might be nothing like mine, mm -hmm. you know, who's wearing a hijab or whatever, and uh, I might look over at her and see her put her hand on her back and stretch out her back because her back hurts because she's just had a really long day, right. and I catch her eye, and I smile because you know what. 
I know how she feels. And we have a shared humanity. And who knows where she was born? Who knows what kind of home life she's going into? Uh, but we have, we, our humanity is shared. And as she touches her back and kind of stretches and we catch each other's eyes, our humanity is shared. And when our humanity is shared, I think our understanding is shared. And I think part of what we learned south of the border is that that shared humanity is something that's in decline. Uh, and I think that's really, really a risk. And it seems to me that transit actually becomes this space of human interaction and of shared experience where cross paths in a way that they might not otherwise. And call me out if I'm romanticizing that, uh, because I might be, but I think about, I think about the story Doug Saunders told about Toronto in his book. And, uh, and I'm hoping we're doing something right here. Right. I think, I think that's right. Uh, transit does create that potential for fellow feeling. I think this is why, you know, in racist societies like the Old South and the United States, transit had to be segregated. Because it was very important that a white person not have that experience that you just described with a black huh, person. Right. Because then they would start understanding each other. So they had to sit in different parts of the bus to prevent that from happening. To prevent that from happening. So um, uh, I do think that reliance on transit, that, that I mean, I, I think really fundamentally that transit should be part of the street, should be part of the commons, that the, that the experience you have inside a transit bus should be a lot like the experience you would have on the sidewalk in terms of um, the way that, that urban life in general requires you to experience the diversity of your society and requires you to, exp to encounter each other physically in a way that will cause you to notice your common humanity. Um, I think there's no question that some of the rising polarization in the United States is the result of, a, of the fact that so many Americans see the true diversity of their society only on television. And they see it mediated through a media that is interested in conflict. Media is always interested in conflict. You know the old line, if it bleeds, it leads. You, um, but this is interesting because I read an article the other day uh, that talked about civil society as an audience as opposed to a participant, and which is exactly what you're talking about, this notion that what just happened was because people are used to being the audience right. and looking at the other from the perspective of an audience as opposed to as, from the perspective of shared experience. And you know, whenever someone says they feel helpless you know, in, their, in the face of what's happening in their society. I want to say, look, you're sitting at home watching television. Of course you're helpless. You have to get up and go outside and talk to people and do something if you want to change your society in any way. Otherwise, you're just, you're just inevitably you're going to be bombarded with the story and the story is going to be curated by people who want you to be upset because, you know, they know that if you're upset, you'll keep watching. So, you know, I think, I think there is definitely a media role in that. But I also want to emphasize um, that... The you know the aberration of Donald Trump being elected really has nothing to do with where American urban society is at all. Um, as you can you can look at the U.S. election returns and understand that the U.S. is extraordinarily cleanly polarized on residential mm -hmm. density. Mm -hmm. Residential density is now one of the best predictors of voting behavior. And again, it comes, and, and I wish we could just acknowledge that people at different densities are having different experiences and it's understandable that they have different perspectives than based on their experience. Certainly of an issue like transit, which is so strongly related to density. Um, and so it's also understandable then that feelings, the, how you feel about the idea of, say, being in a place where you will encounter a lot of diversity. Well, of course, if you live in a big city, you just marinate in that. It doesn't, you don't even notice it anymore. You know, I was, um, I was riding a bus in Los Angeles recently with another friend of mine who's also white. Um, and, you know, I have a more urban experience. He has a more suburban experience. And, you know, later he said, that was so weird. We were the only white people on the bus. And I said, dude, Los Angeles is only like 30% white. What's special about that? <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And yeah, this, the bus was completely diverse. There were all kinds of people of all colors from all over the world, the way you have in LA. Um, but it was perfectly civil and pleasant. And, you know, so lots of people were just in their own worlds with their headphones. But there was nothing threatening about it. And... Um, 
And so as an urban person, I'm just so used to it. I'm just so used to being, you know, having lived in, in big cities, I'm used to being surrounded by lots of languages on the bus, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. used to hearing lots of languages spoken around me. If you come from a rural area, that's really freaky. You know, you've just not had that experience. So um, I just think it's so understandable that the rural experience is what it is. It's so understandable that the urban experience is what it is. I'm just frustrated that we have a media that tells us to hate each other. When, you know, there are so many opportunities around the dinner table. And, you know, lots of people have been writing those stories about, yeah, I'm an urban hipster intellectual who writes for the media. But you know what? I have a family in South Dakota and I go back and have dinner with them. And we have then these conversations about trying to grasp each other's experience and why it's so different and why it's completely understandable that our political opinions are different because our experience is different. Of course it is. There's no reason we have to be ripping each other apart over that. But it's so interesting as you're talking, I was thinking about the parallel between uh, there used to be this weird thing we did in the city where we said you are a car driver or you are a cyclist or you are a transit right. rider. Tribal. Yeah. You know, like like we don't do all three. Like we don't sometimes drive and sometimes take transit and sometimes now take Uber or car to go or have a whole variety of choices. But this notion that we could only be one thing and only think one way. And I think that's actually the beautiful of the beautiful part of the urban environment is it's at its heart about plurality, a plurality of experiences, a plurality of of ideas, and really ensuring that those values somehow can permeate beyond just those urban areas strikes me as being a critical part to continuing to have a civil society that's that's going to flourish. We're talking here about transit right now. You've begun by talking about how that experience is so different, whether it's in a rural environment versus a a um, an urban place. Like, is there, uh, you know, at the risk of um, sounding farcical, is there a role that this whole narrative around transit actually plays? It is the metaphor for connection, for uniting, uh, for shared experience. How does it fit in with some of the biggest social challenges uh, and cultural challenges that we're facing today? I think it's an, it is a useful metaphor. And I think I have to be careful because it, that's something that completely makes sense to us urban intellectuals. Yeah, sure. But probably doesn't make sense much, be, much like, beyond what that. What the hell so, are you talking so, about? So, <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to sound like we're all talking about this in the U.S. right now. You know, we are all, you know, part of this elite that has been rebelled against. And um, we want, and I, want, I think I want to be clear that transit has first and foremost a natural geometric relationship to density such that at very low density it's less likely to be useful to you. And so, of course, there's less understanding of transit. And I don't necessarily want that to imply that those people are not capable of, you know, valuing diversity or any of those things. So I, I, I'm learning to be very careful about that. But I do think it's true that transit is a great meeting space just like the urban street is a great meeting space. And that, you know, people who use transit quickly grow habituated to diversity in a way that it is much harder to do if you drive everywhere. You know, it is perfectly easy if you're in those, if you live in an outer suburban area, you know, you live in your house, people are in your neighborhood are broadly similar to you. You get in your car, you drive to a workplace, you may experience some cultural diversity at the workplace, but you're, but so much of your life is spent in your own cocoon where you control who is in your presence that, um, that inevitably, um, the kind of extreme natural comfort with radical diversity that everybody has if they, you know, walk down a main street in the big city every day. Um, you're not going to have that to the same degree. And I have to be respectful of that. I have to say, okay, I understand that that's your experience. Here's how my experience is. I under, I'm listening to your experience. Um, why is it that we have to lacerate each other? You know, so this goes to the whole point of maybe support and funding for a transit funding decisions about transit do need to be pushed more locally mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that, you know, um, you know, we have a we have a very oversized federal government in the U.S. Much more, uh, much more powerful and much more reaching into all of our lives than, for example, in in Canada or Australia, which are much more federal. Um, and I, you know, I sometimes hear Canadians envying the huge federal spend on transit we have in the U.S. And I'm not sure that's any better. Uh, I'm not sure what we have is better. It means we have a lot of federal manipulation, which gets in the way of our ability, of the ability of a community to make its own decisions and pay for them. 
And I, I don't, and, and I think that in many cases now, um, there is an understandable anger at the U.S. federal government, which is not all on the political right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, some of it is very urbanist when we see the ways that uh, any sort of federal standard that's been designed to be applicable over such a diverse country is just wrong for us, as inevitably it will be wrong for a lot of people. Uh, because it's trying to be all things to all people. So I am increasingly leaning toward um, the the view that although there are certain things obviously that need to be handled at higher levels when they are genuinely so interconnected, um, there's also I think a very important role for pushing power downward and letting uh, municipalities um, have more say more control over their own choices because only then will they feel responsible for their own Mm -hmm. choices. Well, I think, you know, the envy that you hear in the Canadian context is actually partly a story and a narrative as well about taxation because there's an overwhelming sense that the vast majority of our tax dollars go to the federal government, but they don't actually come back to the city. And I think it isn't an interest in having federal control as much as it is an interest about getting that money back. (laughs) How do we get that money back, that, you know, 93 cents on the dollar that leaves the city and we never see again, despite the fact that we have these gaping large infrastructure uh, needs uh, at the municipal level. So I think it, it it really is about that. But it's true, o- over the course of the past several years, I've heard on many occasions, uh, and I probably fall into this category uh, as well at times, as being envious of the federal, or of the approach um, uh, in, in America, you know, the, the notion that the grass is always greener. But I think we might be cured of that today. I don't think we're thinking any longer that the grass is greener. <laughs> we'll, we'll take our system with its, its lumps and uh, its confusions and its simplicity. We'll, we'll take it. We'll, let's just settle that uh, once and for all. I have a feeling that when we turn off the microphones that you and I are going to have a hard time stopping. Uh, but I think we should probably wind up. What I'd like to do is a quick lightning round, a few quick questions just to lighten things up. Just quick answers for you. In your opinion, what is a reasonable amount of time for someone to spend commuting? Uh, 30, um, 30 to 40 minutes each way. It's called Marchetti's Constant. There's actual research behind it. Oh, interesting. Okay, something for us to research. Uh, what is the hardest thing about the work that you do? Oh, that was a deep sigh. <laughs> It's actually the traveling now. It ah, used to be other ironically. things. It used to be other things. But and and I would say that in terms of the work itself, the greatest challenge is all of the people coming into the room, believing they are surrounded by enemies with their views set, um, and you know the challenge of trying to create decision rooms where people are able to actually communicate with each other and welcome each other's different perspectives. Well, and in my experience, that's part of the magic of your work is being able to break down some of the assumptions and create the space for people to kind of come out of their corners. Uh, What inspires you to stick at it? It feels like, um, I feel like I have something useful to offer here that the um, industry or at least that community seem to value. Um, I feel like this is what I'm doing is absolutely existential for big cities. Um, that we have to get transit right and we have to think about transit differently. And we have to think about here's the thing we have to think about transit in a way that is both mathematically coherent and broadly understandable. And too often, you know, we go out to the public and we get their desires, but we don't help them reconcile their desires with the mathematical facts. Right? Brilliant, and that's, so the, always, that's the challenge. You know, my, my slogan is I, like to, I try to convene people in the presence of reality. What should we be looking for in the future of transit planning? What's coming down the horizon? Lots of talk about autonomous vehicles, the impact that might that might have. Uh, sort of makes me crazy. For those who are interested, there's another Invisible City podcast called The Future of the Car, The Future of the City. And the punchline is it's actually a choice. The city's... The cities we make are what we choose to make of them. Autonomous vehicles are not inherently good or bad. Uh, But from your perspective, what should we be watching for in this industry in the future? I think that as we process the, you know, all of the big hype that's coming off of the tech industry, um, we're we're going to have to get clearer and clearer about the fact that the ultimate problem of transportation in the city is a problem of space. It's about the efficient use of, sp- of space because density means more people in less space, which means less space per person, which means space is more precious. So 
everything that's coming off the car industry, which is fundamentally directed to a kind of outer suburban perspective where there's lots of space. So, of course, out there, you're focused on issues of emissions, and so we have electric vehicles, and we are focused on issues of safety, and so we have autonomous vehicles. And those are all going to be great, but those are not going to touch the question of space. The only thing that really touches the question of space is getting lots of people in fewer vehicles, and that's what transit is. That's what transit does. So bonus question, and actually I'm setting you up because there's only one right answer, uh, and there is a right answer. <laughs> <laughs> does the future look bright? You know what? I'm not going to give you the answer you want. Oh, well, I'm going to answer it for you then. The future does look right. Uh, and it looks <laughs> and it looks bright because people like you are doing exceptional work and you're really immersed, I think, in a very intentional way in our, dem our democracy and our democratic process. And the future does look bright uh, in part because I know that you and me and lots of other people who care deeply, uh, not just about our values, but actually about humanity, um, aren't going to give up. That's right. We're yeah, going to keep right. doing the work we do. It's an essential struggle. It has to succeed. Exactly. It has to succeed. Yeah. It has to succeed. Thanks so much, Jared. Thank you, Jen. Great places don't happen to have great transit. They are great because they have great transit, which enables the densities to enable great placemaking, a mix of uses, and a whole bunch of things that you can do within walking distance of home. Jarrett Walker has shaped my thinking on this more than any other expert, and I was grateful to snag him for this interview. Thanks so much to Jarrett. This episode was a labor of love, produced by Ryan Freeman of Lossless Creative and written and narrated by myself, Jennifer Kiesmatt. Each episode includes an original score by Lossless Creative. If you like what you've heard here, give us a like or a share or tell your friends about the Invisible City podcast. Ryan and I are a small team trying to move mountains and your feedback means the world to us. All of our episodes are on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com. 